For the past eight months, I've been carefully reconstructing my daily diet of food. And I can tell you that the more you eliminate certain pieces of food from your diet, the more you start scratching off lists of restaurants that you get to visit. And uh, that doesn't mean you don't miss them. Uh, pathetically, there are times where I will just sit outside a donut shop <laughs> and like a puppy at a rescue mission go, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just painful. Um, and, and obviously McDonald's hasn't been in my world of late either, except for the fact that you get the 99-cent Diet Coke. Now, that is a deal. And so we have one in our little hamlet of Duarte, California. And so recently I thought I need a Diet Coke, and I was driving past, and I said, I'm going to stop at the McDonald's, and to my surprise, I got there, and the entire building had been raised to the ground, like with no announcement, just... And then I noticed this sign out front, store closed. And I thought, is that really necessary? I mean, thank you, McDonald's. I, I, I figured if there wasn't a physical plant that there wouldn't be some teenager in the middle of the empty lot with a fry vat, you know, just getting my French fries ready for my chubby buns, you know, that kind of thing. No? Store closed. The, the purpose of a sign is to explain the complicated. Clearly, McDonald's uh, states the obvious. Signs point to some place. They point to something. And it is no less true with Jesus. His miraculous signs were designed to point to something, and in particular, someone. Richard Rohr is a priest who's written a bunch of books, and in one he says the following, quote, Jesus did two things in his daily ministry, preach and heal, heal and preach, and the healings usually illustrated the themes of his preaching, while the preaching justified and amplified the meaning of the healing. Symbolism. This is a fun subject. It's actually what I do uh, professionally by academic training. Um, I'm a rhetorical critic, which basically means in the media communications field, I watch stuff and I criticize it, which sounds like good work if you can get it. Um, it doesn't pay well, but uh, the notion would be that you're looking for the signs and the symbols and what is said and what is represented, even the nonverbal cues. And as we study in John, and in particular continue our study in John 11, we're going to pick up this story with Jesus returning to Judea from where he was across the Jordan. And back in the city of Bethany, he's going to begin to accomplish what he said last week when we read verse 4 of John chapter 11, and he said of Lazarus's illness, it's not one that leads to death, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is setting off on a mission to fulfill what the symbolic purpose of Lazarus's healing was destined to accomplish. In other words, there is more to the healing of Lazarus than just giving him his best life then. Uh, Jesus has things he wants them and us to see in this miracle. 
And so today, what we'll do is look at three of those things. The first of which is, in the miracle, we see his status as the Messiah. Verses 25 through 27 of John 11 read, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha responded to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus had made his way back to this community of people that were mourning. And theologians and commentators on John 11 will say that there is, a, there is an apex, there is a highlight in this whole John 11 passage. And that is verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The I am statements of Jesus are all throughout the gospel of John. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. Now he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Think about that. I am the power of bringing somebody back to dead. I am that. I embody that. And I am the life. I am the way that people are actually brought to life, physically, spiritually, your entire reason for living. That's me. This would be a particularly obnoxious claim if it were not, in fact, made by the God of the universe in human form. A great teacher, a humble leader, would not make such a claim if it weren't true. Jesus says, if you put your faith in him, you will live beyond this physical world. You'll live for eternity, which he could only assure us was true if he knew there was eternal life beyond this physical existence and that he had some say over who was actually going to get to enjoy that. So it wouldn't be a kind thing for him to promise something he couldn't deliver if he didn't have the authority to actually deliver those things. There's only one reason why this isn't the rantings of a lunatic, and that is because Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, because he's divine. And we see this in the miracle. In his classic, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. It's clear that Martha knew what Jesus was saying because she declares in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God. This miracle was in part designed to confirm to those who saw it that Jesus was the Messiah. He'd come to seek and save the lost. Jesus did throughout his life everything with a purpose. And certainly he says in verse 14 of John 11 that 
the illness was not meant to be the end of Lazarus' physical life on earth, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And this is an interesting linguistic twist here. He is equating himself with God. He's saying it's for the glory of God, and so the Son of God can be glorified. He's, he's effectively saying he is God. The purpose of this was that he would be seen, that the majesty of the Messiah would be on display. This is one, really purpose one, of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. The, the second thing is, in this miracle, we see his heart for the hurting. In verses 33 through 36, the scriptures say, When Jesus saw her, this, again, this is Martha weeping, and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he says, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? The Lord comes to where Lazarus has been buried for four days. Now, if you're doing the math, you know that earlier in the chapter, Jesus waited two days after he heard the news that Lazarus was sick. So there's a certain number of days where not only was Lazarus getting ready to die, but the travel time by foot would have meant that somewhere in that journey, Lazarus died. And he'd been in the grave four days by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, and the communal mourning is in full swing, and this is a part of Jewish life. It should be a part of Christian life, which is that you don't mourn alone. You have family and friends, and even people who maybe are at odds with you at some level have a, have a certain measure of empathy for what you're going through. They all mourn with this family, even Jesus' critics they, they are the ones that said, you know, look, he's weeping too. Jesus truly loves them. And this is the climax of this particular section. In verse 33, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the meaning of the word translated deeply moved implies indignation, uh, almost an outrage. So it begs the question, why so strong a reaction from Jesus if he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead? I mean, occasionally, one of my sporting events, I will watch it after it's already taken place you know, on a DVR and you found out ahead of time that your team won. That makes it watching it a whole lot easier for me because I don't get nearly as frightened or angry when plays don't go my way. Because I know the end, so it doesn't create in me any sense of outrage, because I don't fear that something bad's going to happen. So why would Jesus be that worked up over something he knew he could change in an instant? And what it's obvious to see is that he loved the family. He saw their grief and was filled with compassion for how they were hurting this kind of compassion we all believe we have. But as we see again and again in John's gospel, Jesus not only has compassion for those who were grieving, he has compassion for those who were lost. And 
you know, it's odd, present among this crowd of mourners were some of his critics who too were mourning and he had compassion for them. You see, over the course of his journey with his disciples, that he has quite a bit of patience and compassion for those who are frustratingly dim-witted. Um, his guys are a lot like me, that in spite of being with him at times, they act quite the fool. The New Testament is filled with admonitions that you and I are to go and do likewise. We are to be compassionate towards others, towards the weak, towards the hurting. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 15, 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We're to follow Jesus' example. And when we encounter people who have had a family tragedy in their lives, we all seemingly take well to that type of task. However, when it comes for bearing with the failings of others, having compassion on those who you think are making poor decisions, who, who are just, or, or just a bother, we're unable to extend the kind of Christ-like compassion and heart for people. We're unable, we're unable to see them as hurting people. They're just irritating. The question is why? And the raw truth is that we don't often think about it. We're just sort of put off by people. We don't go, why am I having such a difficult time being compassionate towards this person? And as Shakespeare's Hamlet said, therein lies the rub. We need to think about why this person is so grating to me. And sometimes what we discover is there's something in them that we see in ourselves. Sometimes it's our lack of understanding of how patient God has been with us. And this is really what Paul is saying in Romans 15. We've forgotten that Christ has been more patient with us than we ever have to be with anybody else. That we've sinned against God far more than any enemy in your life or mine has ever sinned against us. And yet Jesus has been extraordinarily patient and compassionate. We see in the miracle, first and foremost, his status as Messiah. Secondly, his heart for the hurting. And then thirdly, and I'll tell those of you who are clock watchers, this third point's a little longer than the first two. So I don't want you to think... We're two-thirds of the way getting to go home. Uh, it's going to be just a smidge longer. In this third piece, we see his will to save us. Now, I distinguish that, or distinguish that from his desire to save us. He clearly has the desire. The question is, can he? He, ex he exerts his will on a person who is dead and brings them to life. Jesus said to Martha in verse 40 of John 11, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. 
But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Jesus tells Martha again that his aim is the glory of God. And then he prays that very thing. He prays aloud so people could hear him. I'm praying these things, Lord. I know you hear me. I'm doing this so that people will know that you sent me. He wants them to see his glory as the divine son of God. We see his glory as the divine compassionate God. And now we're getting to see in this miracle the divine will of God to save people from death. Here is a deeply philosophical question that you can ponder over lunch. And that is, did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and then call to him? Or did his call to him awaken him so he could respond? Reformed theologians have long held that it is the effectual call of Jesus that not only brought Lazarus to life physically, but it's that same effectual call that brings us to life spiritually. And within this system of belief, we, we refer to it as irresistible grace, which means that when the grace of God awakens us from, its spirit, from our spiritual death by virtue of the call of Jesus, one would not and effectively could not resist that call any more than Lazarus would have been awakened in the tomb and laid there in his grave cloths, ignoring the voice of Jesus, resisting the call, willfully lying there, determined to not let his precious free will be violated by the effective call of the Lord. You see Jesus saying, come forth, and whatever that did, a guy who'd been dead for four days snapped out of it. He'd come to life. And of course, when Jesus calls and shouts to him, come out, he comes out. You see this effectual call in the New Testament when Jesus calls his disciples. They drop his nets and follow. You see Jesus' willingness to violate the precious free will of human beings when the Apostle Paul doesn't get asked whether or not he wants to follow Jesus. He gets knocked on his butt and says, you will be my apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus said this in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, the word draw in this case is the one we'd use to describe gathering water from a well. The, the water is inanimate. It has no power or will to leap into the bucket. It must be collected. It is drawn. The third and final reality we see in this sign miracle is the will of God to seek and save the lost. Now, I want to be clear if I can here because there's some sensitivities around this subject. I, I get it. The offer of salvation is made to everyone. John 3.16 says, Whosoever will believe, he will save them. But Jesus says, that unless the Father draws a person, unless brought back to life by his call, they won't come forth. Reformed theologians have unpacked this process of becoming a Christian from a section of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's a passage in Romans 8 that's, been come, to, that's, that's come to be known by those from our corner of the Christian store, if you will, as the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation. And basically what it does is it walks through 
how God brings people to life. And this is what it says in verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you walk through this, you're looking at a foreknowledge, a predestination, a justification, a glorification. You're looking at, in foreknowledge, this is him knowing us and loving us. And this is akin to him being on the other side of the Jordan and knowing and loving Lazarus and his sisters and their extended community and saying, this is what I want to do. And then he determines that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring this guy to life. And then he brings him to life and calls him. And then there's following. God foreloved his children. He predetermined to enable them to believe. And then once we believe, we respond by faith and are justified. And those of us who have been made right with God by virtue of our trust in Christ, we ultimately are going to be made just like Jesus when we see him face to face. And the process we're walking through in this life is to slowly but surely glorify Jesus in the way we live. See, when I was first introduced to this order of salvation concept, it seemed wholly unfair. Although I do see it in the scriptures that God has predetermined everything he's going to believe. He, he, has, he has decreed all that's going to happen before it happens. And I imagined when I heard about this type of thing that it was akin to my poor experiences in elementary school when they'd have like, okay, we're going to divide up and pick teams. And do you remember the nerve-wracking feeling you had like, oh God, am I going to get picked? And you'd sit there and you'd be afraid that you weren't going to be chosen and then if you didn't measure up, you wouldn't get chosen. It had something to do with me. And in this particular case, I want to be clear that Everyone is called. Everyone is invited. The offer of salvation is made to all. But by nature, because we're dead spiritually, we can't hear it. And we don't want to respond to that. We have to be brought to life. Uh, We're all invited to be a part of God's kickball team, but collectively as a human family, we've turned away because we're spiritually incapable of responding. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, the scriptures say, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. See, God's will to save us is seen in Lazarus's death by virtue of his effectual call. We're saved by his grace alone through faith. But so we wouldn't become proud and Jesus would receive all of the glory, the faith to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as did Martha, is a gift. In our New City Catechism, question 35, we asked today, since we are redeemed by grace alone through faith alone, where does this faith come from? And our answer collectively was, all the gifts we receive from Christ, we receive through the Holy Spirit including faith itself. That's a miracle. Every now and again, you'll meet somebody who's had some kind of physical manifestation of healing. And it's terrific when God does that. He still does that. We believe that. We pray for that. 
And one of the things you'll hear, a refrain you'll hear is, I'm lucky to be alive. Or they'll say, God saved me. It's a miracle that I'm standing here with you. And it's true. It is a miracle. But it's no more of a miracle than you being here this morning. Why do you believe? Why do you believe and the kids you grew up with don't? Why do some kids in a family believe and other kids who were raised in the exact same family under the exact same teaching, under the exact same discipline, don't? Why? We never stop to think about that. It's a miracle. I can't believe it. I know I'm every bit as rebellious, and <laughs> my high school reunion was evidence of that. When they heard what I did for a living, they went, get out of here. You know, and I'm like, I, I know it's as crazy as, as it sounds. I, I've become a Christian. I had an experience in college, kid from, I grew up with who played football at West Virginia. I was on a date with a young woman, and we were eating pizza, and I'm trying to impress this Christian girl, and, and he walks up, and, and uh, hey, this is my friend, and uh, hey, he plays football, and, and we started kind of chatting, and he says, you know, what are you going to do after college? And I said, I, I think I'm going to go into some kind of ministry. I, I've become a Christian. And he looked at me and he went, right. And he walked away. <laughs> and the date I was with was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, it's okay. I'll go home and cry now. But I, have a... I mean, I am amazed. If my friends are amazed, I'm even more so. How did I get here as a Christian, let alone a minister? This is the point of our passage. It's, it's, it's supposed to make you and I realize we've been brought to life miraculously for his glory. That people would see in us and say, how, how, why? why? Uh, I don't understand. And yes, we have answers to questions. Sometimes we don't. But the raw truth is, is that we if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically. Do you know how crazy that sounds if you're not a Christian? It's like you believe a guy came back to life. And we're like, yeah, we actually believe he brought others back to life too once. And, and people who don't believe, they don't understand how you could get your arms around that. And while there's historical precedent and scriptural dependency and there's all sorts of reasons for believing... It's a miracle that we do. And it's a miracle that's brought about by the grace of God, enabling you and I to see what we otherwise wouldn't see, to hear what we otherwise couldn't hear because we're every bit as broken and fallen as any other person in this world. And God has done this miracle in Lazarus's life so that his glory may be seen. He does our, the miracle of our lives for the exact same reason. Let us pray.